Hello and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Wednesday, May 25th, and today we're recording the second in a short series of SSI Live podcasts on a recently published multi-author study entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments and Transatlantic Security. The COVID-19 pandemic has unleashed an immense shock to the global economy. In Europe, gross domestic product has fallen and unemployment has risen. China might take advantage of this crisis, just as it did in the wake of the global financial crisis a decade ago. As part of its broader national security strategy, China might again use its sovereign wealth fund, government-affiliated companies, and nominally private Chinese firms to provide necessary liquidity and investment in Europe. In doing so, Beijing could take advantage of Europe's economic difficulties to obtain sensitive technologies, build its soft power and influence, and acquire militarily significant infrastructure. To further examine these topics, SSI assembled an interdisciplinary team of experts from the U.S. Army War College, private think tanks, and academia. The resulting study, just published and available at the SSI website, which is ssi.armywarcollege.edu, has revealed several lessons for serious concern. The resulting study, just published and available at the SSI website, or ssi.armywarcollege.edu, has revealed several reasons for serious concern about predatory Chinese economic statecraft in Europe today. To mitigate and manage these concerns, the study includes an array of practical policy recommendations for decision makers on both sides of the Atlantic. To launch the study, we're recording a series of podcasts with each of the study contributors. And today is our second with Dr. Roger Cliff, who was the lead author of the chapter on China's strategy in and policies toward Europe. Roger is a research professor of Indo-Pacific Affairs at SSI. Previously, he worked as a senior research scientist at the Center for Naval Analyses, or CNA, and before that, he was a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's published widely on issues regarding the Chinese military and security in East Asia. He's fluent in spoken and written Mandarin, and he holds a PhD in international relations from Princeton University. Roger, welcome. I'm happy to be here, John. Roger, let's start at the, the broadest level, uh, not Europe-specific, but most broadly, what's China's raison d'etre? What's its principal strategy or mission today? So uh, I think when you look at China, you first need to disaggregate China from uh, the Chinese leadership, the top leaders of the Communist Party of China. And they, of course, their number one goal is to remain in their position as the top leaders of the Communist Party of China, which is uh, the ruling party in China. 
And um, for the last four decades now, the legitimacy of the Communist Party of China has been built on really two main pillars. One is delivering ever-rising standards of living for the people of China, and the other is um, uh, restoring China to what is seen as its rightful place in the world as one of the most uh, uh, wealthiest and influential civilizations. And that includes a number of dimensions, including, of course, China's military power, but also China being seen as a world technological and cultural leader as well. Okay, so with, with those broad goals in mind, tell us now, let's focus a little bit more, tell us now how China pursues that strategy, that two-part strategy with regard to Europe. What's, what's its, its uh, I guess you could say, its sub-strategy for Europe in trying to achieve those broad goals? Yeah, so I would say there's three main elements to China's strategy towards Europe, or it has three main goals. Um, and uh, those goals support its overall uh, national grand strategy. One of them is uh, to increase China's uh, wealth by uh, growing its economic relations with Europe increasingly exporting goods to Europe and also acquiring um, valuable inputs for China's exports to other parts of the world from Europe. Uh, second of all is acquiring European technology, which is among the most advanced in the world in a number of areas, um, including areas that the Chinese government see as, as key to China's moving into the most uh, important areas of, uh, of the world economy in coming years. And then third is to increase its political influence in Europe for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, one of which is to further those first two goals that I mentioned, but also uh, because uh, Europe is such an influential player in world politics, and you have um, Britain and France uh, in particular as members of the United Nations, permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. And, and so therefore Europe plays a very influential world, a role in uh, world uh, institutions such as the United Nations as well. So for all those reasons, China, uh, does want to be able to influence both the external policies of European nations as well as their their policies towards things like trade and investment from China. So it sounds like it's a, kind of a broad range of both influence as well as uh, drawing economic benefit from its relationship with Europe, again, to, to achieve the, the broad objectives of uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party back home. What kinds of policies have we seen the Chinese pursue in trying to achieve these goals in Europe? Words, what's it doing on the ground in Europe today or what has it done recently? China's signature foreign policy initiative for the last decade now has been the Belt and Road Initiative. And um, this has, uh, although it's a, a very broad initiative that uh, aims at connecting China across Eurasia, 
um, with much of the developing world, including Central Asia, South Asia, Africa, and so on. But really, the ultimate uh, endpoint of the Belt and Road Initiative, as initially conceived, was Europe because of its wealth and the size of its markets, and as I uh, said earlier, the technology that that European companies possess. And uh, so, therefore, uh, a lot of China's policies towards Europe in recent years have centered around the Belt and Road Initiative, which um, is an effort to increase connectivity between China and all the countries, uh, as I said, across Eurasia and and elsewhere in the developing world, including Africa and Latin America as well. Um, And that is through, uh, I guess, the best known aspect of it is the infrastructure that China has been building. Um, And that includes roads and ports and railroads and so on. But there are other elements as well of, of that connectivity, including uh, telecommunications connectivity. Uh, China is also working to uh, facilitate um, uh, exchanges between people and uh, in particular scientists and so on between China and countries along the Belt and Road. And in the case of Europe, it has been aimed in particular at uh at countries in Eastern and Southern Europe, which are seen as perhaps in more need of Chinese investment and um, and uh, markets than other parts of Europe. And one policy, uh, one initiative in particular has been the so-called 17 plus one grouping, which consists of and its membership has fluctuated a little a little bit, but it consists of China and 16 or 17 uh, Eastern and Southern European nations that China meets with on an annual basis and has, in addition, a number of ongoing efforts to try to improve economic and other types of connectivity between China and those nations. So it sounds like China's pursuing really a, it's using a broad range of tools to try to achieve these objectives in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about Chinese investment in Europe today? In other words, what, what trends have we seen maybe over the last couple of years or, or most recently in the wake of the, of the pandemic-induced recession, whether it's investment by the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund or it's state-owned enterprises or even nominally private Chinese firms? What direction have things been going in? Yeah, so there's definitely been a change in uh, the last few years in China's investment strategy towards Europe. About a decade or so ago, particularly in the wake of the of the 2008 world financial crisis, uh, just kind of happened to coincide with a fairly exuberant period for uh, a number of Chinese enterprises, both state-owned and private, uh, who were in the process of acquiring all kinds of assets in Europe, some of which um, perhaps made economic sense for those companies. <clears throat> and you saw things like the Dongfeng Truck Company acquiring Volvo, um, but uh, a car company, a Swedish car company, but 
Uh, you also saw a lot of other things that seemed just like sort of vanity acquisitions, purchases of European soccer clubs and that sort of thing. Part of the change uh, is perhaps because of different circumstances in Europe now as compared to the immediate aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. But also there's been a shift in politics and economic strategy in China. And a lot, uh, first of all, a lot of Chinese enterprises are particularly private enterprises have been uh, either shut down or, or severely reined in in terms of uh, their activities abroad. And so now we're seeing a lot more uh, activity by state-owned enterprises or companies that are proxies for state-owned enterprises, nominally private companies, but are acting on the behalf of state-owned enterprises. So, for example, there might be a startup uh, company based in Beijing that tries to acquire a uh, perhaps a European specialized aviation manufacturer or something like that. Probably in, in some cases, at least that startup company doesn't actually have the, the knowledge and um, expertise to actually successfully run that company. And their goal in some cases may be to simply turn around once they've made the acquisition, turn around and sell either the European company or themselves as the owner of that European company to a a bigger, most likely Chinese uh, state-owned aviation manufacturer, just as one example. So we see a lot more, uh, much more strategic and selective types of acquisitions going on nowadays where Chinese companies are trying to acquire particular capabilities or get into very specific markets in Europe as opposed to a, a much less uh, discriminating approach that we saw in the past. So perhaps less investment activity, but, but more focused. Has has the war in Ukraine affected any of this? In other words, has it impacted China's approach toward Europe? I think it's a little too soon to tell um, uh, what the uh, effect is going to be. Of course, Ukraine itself was an important partner for China in a number of areas, but particularly uh, areas like aviation and uh, turbine engines, where uh, Ukrainian technology is used by both Chinese domestic and uh, defense manufacturers. Um, and China has been trying to walk a fine line uh, with regard to Ukraine in terms of um, appearing to at least officially be neutral on the war between Ukraine and Russia. But in fact, uh, China has been very supportive of Russia. Uh, shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, met with Xi Jinping, China's leader, um, in Beijing prior to the start of the 2022 Winter Olympics, and they declared that their friendship had no limits. Uh, and so clearly China has been trying to build a very close strategic partnership with Russia. Um, at the same time, um, it has a long-stated norm of opposing 
aggression and interference in the internal affairs of other countries and uh, protection of national sovereignty, uh, all of which the Russian invasion of Ukraine has violated. So um, China is trying to remain on good relations with the rest of Europe uh, by at least professing to be neutral on the conflict, even though, in fact, they are um, supporting Russia in a variety of ways. But I think uh, it's a little too soon to tell what the long-term impact on China's relations with Europe are going to be. We, um, we had already seen sort of a souring, if you will, in some of those Eastern European countries that I talked about earlier in terms of their expectations for Chinese investment and market access, uh, having disappointed them in, in the amount uh, and benefits that they had received from them. China's support for Russia has obviously not gone down well in a number of Eastern European countries like Lithuania or Poland, who are themselves concerned about possible Russian aggression. Um, but in terms of specific policies uh, and the overall relationship, I think it's a little too soon to tell what the long-term impact is going to be. Okay, Roger, speaking of long-term, my last question for you is to ask you to put on your prognosticator's hat. What do you expect we might see in the years ahead in terms of Beijing's approach toward Europe? What, what's your, what do your instincts tell you? Well, I guess to me the most striking thing in the last few years has been uh, not so much on uh, changes on Beijing's side, but changes in European attitudes towards China. It seemed like a few years ago, uh, no one in Europe was particularly concerned about China as a security threat. Human rights problems in China were, you know, were criticized by certain elements in European societies, but didn't really seem to affect the policies of European governments, and um, and China was mainly seen as an economic opportunity for Europe. I think that's really changed in the last few years. Uh, China's treatment of its Uyghur minority, its treatment of of uh, the once free uh, special administrative region of Hong Kong in recent uh, years, and China's growing. Um, assertiveness in the security realm all have, I think, caused people in Europe to be more skeptical and even concerned about China. And that is uh, starting to affect trade policy as well. I already mentioned about how Eastern European countries are, are maybe less receptive to Chinese uh, investment and other types of inducements than before. And we're seeing your uh, Western European countries starting to impose stricter controls on uh, technology exports and Chinese investments into Europe. So I think we are seeing a significant shift in the relationship between China and Europe. And um, I think this is a challenge for the Chinese leadership that they probably they don't quite know how to deal with it right now. Um, but uh, and maybe in coming years we will see a major shift in Chinese policy towards Europe. But I think right now they they are still kind of absorbing this new reality and trying to figure out how to adjust their own strategy. Well, Roger, thank you so much for sharing those insights. 
Let me also thank you for teeing up the next podcast in this series. We'll be talking next week with Eric Brotberg about uh, his chapter in the study on Europe's reaction to Chinese efforts uh, in economic statecraft. So, Dr. Roger Cliff, Research Professor of Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Listeners, you can find this just-released study we've been discussing today entitled China, Europe, and the Pandemic Recession, Beijing's Investments and Transatlantic Security at ssi.armyworldcollege.edu. Please join us for future episodes of this series here at SSI Live. As I mentioned in our next episode, we'll be discussing Europe's reaction to China's strategy and policy and assessing the shifting European attitudes toward China. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.